Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 132 being recorded on Monday, May 21st, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, Jason, we're both back in our uh, our local areas here. I think you're local. Are you local? Are you? I am. I am. You are correct. Yeah. I never know where you are these days. Uh, We were both in Austin uh, recently and we had a real fun trip down there. Uh, It's rare we're in the same city, much less at the same conference. And we both spoke on separate topics at the NPD Idea Conference. Indeed. Did you have fun? Uh, I did. It was a great conference. I enjoyed the conference. And of course, it's always fun to get to spend some time with you in person. I feel like we we talk all the time uh, via via the microphone, but it's it's fun to actually see you making funny faces when I say stuff. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't come over the the podcast quite as much as in person. No, we might have to start doing this as a video call, maybe. <laughs> okay, uh, so tonight we thought we would uh, there. Uh, wanted to share some of the insights from the show. This is a a pretty interesting show uh, that we attend. And uh, let me kick it off by explaining who is NPD. So NPD is a firm that provides data to over 20 industries for brands and retailers. And how this works is they're kind of like Nielsen. Nielsen, I think, does this for CPGs and NPD does it for non-CPGs is how I kind of think about it. So what they do is they take all this data, uh, largely from point of sale systems across over a thousand retailers that opt into this program. Um, that data is all swirled together, anonymized, uh, and then also mixed in with uh, over 12 million consumer surveys. And the output of that is some really interesting data that they uh, brands license uh, and retailers to understand things. So, for example, um, let's say you sell. I don't know uh, what's a good idea. Um, uh, GoPro style cameras, or you know anything like that, action cameras. You can use the NPD data to see how is your model doing versus the competition. Um, how you know how much is the number one doing, the number two uh, across different retailers, things like that. Um, every year, they uh, every other year they get some of their top customers together in categories like apparel, automotive, beauty. Uh, consumer electronics, jewelry, uh, essentially everything but CPG, and they look at the trends that are shaping the industry. And I've spoken at this a couple times, and uh, it was exciting to have you there. This year, the theme was under fire, on fire. And it's kind of a clever theme. So what they're trying to articulate there uh, is the retail is under fire. Uh, everyone's feeling that. But then there are certain segments that are doing really well. So there are certain segments that are on fire. Um, so I unfortunately had a conflict and I was not able to get down for the first part of day one. But you were there and were able to attend some really good sessions you told me about. So let's start the recap there on the morning of day one. Yeah. Uh, so they they kick things off with a bang. Um, you you mentioned a lot of great brands attend. It also tends to be really senior stakeholders from a lot of the brands and retailers, which is kind of cool. So it's a uh, a pretty uh, impressive, intimate gathering. And so the first keynote was actually the CEO of Target, Brian Cornell. Um, so that's a pretty good get, as we would say in the industry. Um, and I'm always like, obviously, I always want to hear what Brian has to say. It's always it's always great when these guys come to events and are willing to share. Comma, the CEOs of major retail organizations are super polished, and they they certainly don't come here with the intention of giving away any trade secrets, and they never do. So, um, you know, you've got to kind of moderate your expectations. You're you're not likely going to get some revolutionary new announcement from from Brian at a show like this. Uh, but you know, I, I think it's interesting to hear his his take on on a lot of the things that Target's going through and trying to do. Uh, and he spent a lot of his talk really talking about the sort of changing role of the store. Um, and, you know, he, he was pretty candid. He's like, hey, 
you know, these stores today have all these super important roles. We, uh, you know, we have customers that uh, come to the store to pick up orders that they placed online. We have a lot of curbside pickup. Now we're using the stores as an inventory location to do uh, same-day deliveries to customers' homes. We ship over half our e-commerce orders from the stores to the customer's home. Uh, you know, customers used to come to to sort of explore and evaluate products, and now many customers want to check to make sure the products are in stock before they come to the store. Um you know, all these different use cases of how the target guest wants to use the store that are very different than the use cases the guest had even seven years ago when, you know, most of the newest target stores were built. And so, you know, he spent a lot of the time talking about the challenges and opportunities of, you know, taking a, a store that was designed to solve one particular set of problems and leveraging it to solve uh, a lot of uh, newer, very different problems. And so I, I found that uh, interesting. And then he did shift to talk a little bit about their their acquisition last year, um, or this year, rather, for Shipt. Um, and Shipt is a delivery service. Uh, so they are sort of, you could think of them as sort of personal shoppers. Before the target acquisition, they supported a number of retailers you could order products from their website. They would go to a retail store, pick up those products for you and deliver them to your home. Um, and, and so, you know, I think most of us talk about them as primarily being a same day delivery option. Uh, and, you know, Brian did mention that I think they have curbside pick up in over a thousand stores now and that they're they're quickly moving to same day delivery in a thousand stores, leveraging these these shipped employees that they've uh, they've hired, but his real focus was that the delivery is the least important part of the, the shipped experience. Um, that these are the, the magic of, of shipped and the reason that target was particularly interested in, in them versus some of the other vendors out in the space was that shipped had this intimate personal shopper model where they, they had tried to maintain full-time employees and they would try to send the same employee to the same customer. So the algorithm, uh, you know, always tried to match up the same shopper with the customer so that they, that shopper would get to know the customer over time. They have communication tools built into the platform. So if the shopper has questions or has to make substitutions, they could communicate in, in real time. And apparently a high percentage of the the shipped uh, personal shoppers are moms. And so Brian kind of talked about it being a, a moms to moms service and that the, the target guests really valued this personal relationship that they were starting to develop with this, this uh, uh, formerly shipped uh, pers personal shopper. That's now a, a core part of the new target experience. Very cool. Uh, so then uh, after that, they followed up with another strong keynote. This one was from Google. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a dude, I'm pretty sure this is not the name his mother gave him, uh, but he goes by Astro Teller. Um, and I was familiar with Astro. I hadn't seen him speak before, though, and he was. I, I thought he was awesome. Uh, so he is responsible for the Moonshot program at Google. And uh, you may know more about this than I do, but like in general... Uh, I think of the Moonshot program is the portfolio of uh, initiatives at Google that are uh, all intended to to develop new billion dollar plus revenue businesses. So like the autonomous vehicles would be the the big marquee thing in the in the Moonshot program. Yeah, they um, when they transitioned to Alphabet, I think they call it X and then um the self-driving has spun out as Waymo. Um, there's a couple other things they've done. Uh, but inside of there, I think as drones, the balloon internet, flying cars, there, there's still a lot of really wacky stuff in there. So yeah, plenty of interesting things going on in that, in that group. And we'll come back to wacky, but as you can imagine, a guy named Astro is pretty good at talking wacky. Um, so he, you know, uh, he, he was mainly talking about, innovation. Um, and he, he started out by uh, defining this thing that he called level one versus level two innovation, right? And so level one innovation are like those things that could make your business 10% more successful. And the level two innovation are those things that could make you, you know, 10x more successful. Um, and so, you know, uh, he's not the only guy talking about 10% versus 10x. Uh, but his point was, the first time you 
you hear any good 10x idea, it's going to sound crazy. Um, and so, like, by definition, to be successful at these kind of 10x innovations in any organization, you have to be comfortable sounding crazy and you, and you have to cultivate uh, an environment that's safe enough that, that people are comfortable enough proposing things that sound crazy um, because he's like, you know, his, his premise is fundamentally – uh, these things that are so disruptive to the business that they could, you know, drive uh, uh, 10x growth for the business, like just are so disruptive that they that they don't sound rational or safe uh, upon, you know, first consideration. And so uh, he, he had kind of a funny line. He, he's, you know, show of hands in the audience. Um, I'm going to give you a choice between uh, two options and you raise your hands and tell me which one you'd rather do. Would you rather do an initiative that has the potential to generate a billion dollars in new revenue for your company, but only has a 10% chance of success? Or would you rather do something that will generate a million dollars, but has a guaranteed success? And uh, not surprisingly, the, you know, basically everyone in the audience raised their hand and said, hey, we'd, we'd rather do the billion dollars with a 10% chance. Uh, mathematicians on uh, that are listening to the podcast would quickly note that like the 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 weighted value of a ten billion dollar opportunity with a ten percent chance is still a hundred million dollar opportunity versus a one million dollar opportunity. So so statistically speaking, that that's the the better risk. Um, but then he asked the funny follow up question: uh, How many of you fundamentally believe that your boss always supports the billion dollar opportunity versus the million dollars guaranteed? And way less hands went up. And so he's like, all right, so uh, here, here, uh, here's my innovation solution for you. You don't need a new innovation strategy. You need a new boss. And so he, you know, he kind of went into this, this whole premise about how organizations are just you know, wired to um, avoid risk. And that you know, even though it's irrational, um, you know, most, most organizations are, are built to reward uh, you know, bias towards the one million dollars in guaranteed uh, revenue versus the the ten percent chance at a billion dollar shot, um, and how you know companies that want to be successful, you know, have to think differently. Um, he, you know, he then kind of went into you know some of the things that you you should do uh, to be a, a successful level two innovation company, and you know one of the the big points he had there was. Uh, that you should always tackle the hardest part first. Um, and he, he talked about how that's kind of counterintuitive, that a lot of people, you know, want to get a quick success under their belt. So, you know, they'll tackle the part that seems easiest to do. Um, and, uh, you know, he talked about how when you explain to someone rationally why they should do the hard part first, uh, that they'll, they say they kind of get it, but it doesn't really change behavior. And so he, he's come up with this kind of silly metaphor to, uh, to make it more apparent. He's like... If your boss assigns you to get a monkey, teach it to recite Shakespeare standing on a pillar, should you start by teaching the monkey how to recite Shakespeare or should you start by building the pillar? And his his point being, like, sure, you could start by building the pillar and you get an early win and you could say you were 50% through the problem because you solved one of the two problems, but you're never going to teach the monkey how to recite Shakespeare, so building the pillar was a complete and utter waste of time. Whereas if you would have started with the problem of uh, training the monkey to sh- recite Shakespeare, you would have quickly learned you cannot, in fact, train a monkey to recite Shakespeare. Um, and therefore, you know, you would have moved on. And in a, a company that rewards uh, level two innovation, that that quick learning and failure, you know, would have would have been rewarded versus versus penalized. So that was kind of uh, the premise of his talk. Uh, he was super engaging and had some funny anecdotes. Um, but my favorite part of his presentation, uh, was definitely the off script moment. He, he, uh, walked through a bunch of future technologies that he feels like are going to create 10 X opportunities for, for companies. So he was talking about bioengineering he's talking about AI and he wasn't so much selling any of these specific ideas, but just talking about how they trigger these kind of 10 X ideas. And, you know, some of the things that, that you might do with them sound, sound crazy at first, um, and one of the points he, he wanted to make was about, you know, some changes to cybersecurity. And so as a precursor, he, sa- he, he asked everyone, like, 
to raise their hand if they were, you know, uh, primarily concerned about uh, cybersecurity today. And almost no one in the room raised their hand. And it was it was a his reaction was hysterical. He it was kind of a uh, an oh no moment. And he's like he's like oh my god, forget all this stuff about innovation. Uh, I have bad news for you. The bad guy is already in your network. Like you've already been breached. I didn't realize this wasn't already common knowledge. <laughs> and so he, he kind of went into this, this whole, whole like absolutely correct narrative about how, um, you know, sophisticated intrusion has gotten and how, you know, these kids that attend the, the hacker conferences like break into much more secure networks than retailer networks for fun and how like all these networks are almost certainly already breached and there are already people inside your network. And that if you don't have a business model, uh, to protect your customers' data when you've already been breached, you know, you're probably in trouble. Um, in fairness to the attendees, you know, he went right after Brian Cornell from Target. So, uh, you know, a ton of Target people were in the audience. And if you work at Target and you, you, you've been the victim of the very public breach that had a material impact on your business, um, you probably don't in a public room raise your hand and say, hey, I'm super concerned about cybersecurity, right? So, you know, maybe maybe people just felt like it was inappropriate to to share that concern publicly, and that's why they they didn't respond. Or maybe they had question answering fatigue by that point. Um, but it was a a, a funny diatribe that uh, Astro went off on, and uh, and uh, certainly true. Like we we all should act like like uh, the the bad guys are already in our network. Got it. Yeah, maybe it's because brands, a lot of the brands at these conferences are pretty early on their direct consumer journey, so maybe they. Maybe they're not even really thinking transactional websites, maybe why they're not thinking about it. But, but certainly the retailers in the room should be pretty first on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll do it on another show, but there have been a, a lot more breaches and uh, in retail in the last couple of months. And particularly vendors that a lot of retailers rely on have been breached. And it's, it's given a black eye to Best Buy and Sears and a bunch of others. Yeah. What, what I find interesting is it's the ones I've seen usually are not through the e-commerce side because the e-commerce side's kind of got more thought around this. It usually is the the physical point of sale, which is the, the entry, entry point. Yeah. The physical point of sales have been a disaster. And then some of these recent ones were, were an, like ancillary things like the the chat system that the retailer uses for customer service that, you know, you can also change an order via chat. And so there's a commerce function in there. And to your point, it it's not leveraging the same technology as the normal e-commerce site and doesn't, you know, apparently in, in uh, several cases didn't have the same level of security. Cool. And then who was up after Google? Yep. Uh, so then the afternoon keynote, and this is all on Wednesday. So Wednesday was kind of a full day. I think most of the attendees maybe showed up, uh, Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. Um, the, the, Tuesday afternoon keynote after lunch uh, was this gentleman, Michael Dart, who's uh, uh, at uh, A.T. Kearney, and uh, he has written a book uh, called uh, uh, Retail Seismic Shift, uh, How to Shift Faster, Respond Better, and Win Customer Loyalty. And I want to say it came out late last year, maybe like November or so, so it's probably about six months old now. And so he uh, did a talk about uh, consumers of the future uh, and had a lot of good points in it. Um, I think we're going to try to get him on the show here in an upcoming episode. Yeah, so maybe we should – let's give just a little taste and then we'll, yeah. we'll move on. Yeah, so a couple of the things that jumped out at me, and that's that's Scott's subtle way of saying that we're going too slow. Uh, <laughs> the An interesting thing I just never thought about is uh, one of the trends he talks about is dematerialization, which is this sort of shift – from atoms to pixels. Um, and uh, he, he had an interesting stat that in order to create a dollar of GDP in 1930 required about four kilograms of material that like you had to make into something to sell to generate a dollar of GDP. Uh, that, that same GDP in 1990, so 60 years later, you could make with one kilogram. So, so the amount of, of atoms like, got cut down by a fourth uh, or only 25% of the atoms were required 60 years later, uh, you know, fast forward today and you only need 100 milligrams, so one-tenth of what you needed in 1990. And so there's just, you know, this this strong shift in the economy away from from material uh, goods driving the, the economy. Uh, 
he, uh, you know, then kind of uh, went into the, the bifurcation topic that we've talked about a few times on the show. So, you know, he had a stat that 65% of, of the uh, of the population was in the middle class in the 1970s, and today it's only about 40% of the population is in the, the middle class. So you're getting, you know, uber-rich people and poorer people. And, you know, his, his premise is one of the ways that that plays out in – uh, retail is you have these on one end of the spectrum price-based retailers that really focus on offering low price and that cohort of retailers he uh, believes have grown 35 percent is their is their five-year growth rate um, uh, for the price-based retailers 37 percent uh, on the other end of the spectrum the luxury premium brands have actually grown even better at like 80 percent and all the retailers in between that he would call the balanced retailers that aren't like aggressively focused on price and aren't aggressively focused on luxury experiences have only grown at two percent. So sort of showing that the the growth in retail has exactly mirrored the bifurcation of the population. Uh, we've had Casey Wellenbaugh from uh, Deloitte talking about that on the show as well. Um, you know, uh, you know, had some interesting statistics on on malls. We talk a lot about how the A malls are doing a lot better than the rest of the malls. But he actually had some statistics that all malls are down nine percent. It's just uh, the A malls are uh, traffic is down nine percent uh, over the last couple of years from a, a better starting point. So they've gone from like growing to flat, whereas the B and C malls have gone from flat to losing ten percent of their traffic in the last two years. Um, yeah, on the malls, he also um, – I'll put it out as a teaser for when we have him on the show. He had the uh, the worst Mulligan prediction I've heard. <laughs> so so he had the highest number of mall closures that he's thinking are going to happen. So I, I was a little surprised by that, but that's interesting. Yeah, uh, but it is true that like only about like – 20% of the malls would be in this like a category. So I think, did he say there, he, he thought about a thousand malls would get taken out of the system. Is that what I'm remembering? I think he said 1300, 1300, okay. like 1500. Yeah. I think yeah. there was only like so that, 200 remaining. Yeah. So that's, that does still mirror the kind of a versus uh, B and C ratio. Uh, side note, we'll talk about on another show is uh, the, the planning commission in Miami Dade, Florida just approved a new mall project, which there are very few of those in the world. And this mall would actually be the largest mall in the U S so it'd be bigger than the mall of America in Minneapolis. And so that, uh, kind of bucking the, the, the mall getting trend is we could have a new bigger mall than we've ever seen before, which would be an interesting evolution. Um, and then, uh, the last thing, uh, I'll, I'll touch on from, from Michael Dart's presentation, uh, he, he was talking about this, uh, uh, matrix that he called the, the con matrix, um, is developed by this woman, Barbara Kahn, who's a professor at Warden. She, she wrote a book a couple of years ago called the shopping revolution. Um, and in her world, like you could draw this two by two matrix that all retailers fit in on the left side of the matrix are, are retailers that are focused on product benefits. And so on product benefits, on uh, one end of the spectrum, you have uh, people that focus on the prestige of the brand. And so, you know, she would use like uh, uh, Louis Vuitton or Warby Parker or Saks Fifth Avenue or Zara or Nike as kind of brand brand uh, advocates there. Um, and she would use like Italy or Sephora as experience based retailers as the other end of that that uh, that extreme. Um, and then the the other side of the matrix would be uh, people that focus on customer experience. And there the the spectrum is from uh, people that primarily focus on low price. So she's got like Costco, Walmart, TJ Maxx and Burlington and that um, that quadrant. Um, and then frictionless uh, as the as the other end of that spectrum. And she has Amazon as the primary example of frictionless. And so. Uh, kind of a different spectrum. This would be way more apparent if I were to, able to draw it for you on the podcast. So maybe I'll, I'll try to put a picture in the in the show notes. Um, but as as you'll hear a lot of retail pundits talk about, like you know, there tend to be these spectrums. There tend to be areas in the spectrum where retailers can really thrive and do well. And the 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 retailers that are really struggling, and when we talk about Mulligan and we talk about retailers that are seeing negative growth, it's almost always the case that they're the ones that have fall in the middle of these spectrums and haven't really made a, a committed effort to own 
you know, one of one of the the pillars. And so this this was another one of these matrices where where that, you know, you, you kind of look at, at her marquee examples in each each of the quadrants and say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then you'd say, you know, folks that kind of fall in the middle of this this two by two are, are probably in trouble. And um, and, you know, at the moment, that's that's sort of what's playing out in the marketplace. Interesting. Yeah. So then that was all really warm up. Um, so those were, those were sort of the three opening acts, uh, Target, Google, uh, Michael Dart, um, because then we all went to an even bigger room where they had their biggest session of the show, which is this whole session about marketplaces. And uh, side note for our listeners, Scott, this is the second year Scott's done this talk, and it was super annoying for me because... Every time I would talk to the the women planning the show about my session, they'd say, hey, registration's great. You're doing really well. You're like the second most popular session, but you're way behind Scott. <laughs> yeah, I was uh... – Yep. So, uh, that was fun. I was, I was coaching them to make sure that you knew that I was ahead of you. So figured a little fun competition there would, would be yes, interesting. Yes. And I, I, I was a little jealous cause you did get to pick your topic and I sort of, I, I accepted a topic they put in the, the agenda. But you knocked it out of the park. We'll, we'll get to that in a Thanks, second. Man. So yeah, what so, did you talk um, about in marketplaces? Is that a thing? It is. Yep. So two years ago in, uh, I did my stand. Standard Amazon talk, which is uh, essentially for longtime listeners, uh, if you go way back to episode 24, we did the Amazon deep dive. Uh, so that's kind of a, a lot of the same content that, that I gave in that talk. Uh, and this time they wanted to kind of widen the aperture and talk about marketplaces. So just, just a quick summary about what we talked about. And uh, what we'll do is I'll send you a PDF, Jason, and we can put kind of a copy to it in the – a link to it in the show notes if people want to go through the presentation so uh, the the approach for marketplaces, uh, and, and this is really interesting because you know you and I have been at this a long time. I've, I've been at this marketplace thing for twenty years, um, and and what I found is there's a huge desire for content that's that's pretty basic for what a retailer or a seller would think about a marketplace. Um, because what's happening is all these brands are start, starting to think about going direct and they're just learning all the basics, um, that, that, you know, uh, a retailer or a, a quote unquote seller has already, you know, they're on kind of version eight and these guys are on version one. So, but it is always fun to kind of go back and revisit these things because the world has changed so much. Just a simple thing. And you and I had a fun, uh, slight disagreement about this is, you know, what is a marketplace and how do you define it? Um, so for example, selling, uh, on overstock, is that a marketplace or not? I would say by strict definition, probably not because, uh, well, my definition of marketplace is you, you sell off of your website. There's transparency for the consumer who you're buying from. And then the business model is a uh, percentage kind of a business model, not a traditional wholesale markup. So once you have that wholesale markup in there, it's essentially just a dropship relationship with a first party retailer, um, not a marketplace. So, um, so in this talk, we, we broadly talked about, you know, taking a step back and talking about consumers. What do they want? Um, you know, we've, we've talked about that a lot on the show. I don't think there'll be any surprises there. Then what is a marketplace? So just answer that question. The types of marketplaces. Uh, so you have pure plays like eBay. You have hybrids like uh, Amazon. You've got new social ones. You've got app-based now, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then we talked about the pros and cons of selling on a marketplace uh, and then some takeaways for the brands. So it was a fun discussion. There was a very lively Q&A. Uh, when I'm in the middle of q and I can never remember the questions. I don't know if you recall any that were uh, salient for listeners, but um, there was way more questions than we had time for, and then we had to go to a break, and uh, then we had a lot of good discussions around marketplaces. Yeah, and uh, let the record show, I, I think, like, I certainly agree with your definition that, like, Wayfair is a dropship program more so than a marketplace. But what you call a marketplace uh, that I totally understand after you explain it, but like I think myself and a lot of other people don't immediately think of as a marketplace are some of the the social selling models. And like when Google sells products through PLAs or uh, shoppable pins on Pinterest or some of those things. And and I uh, once you draw the picture, I totally get how it is a marketplace. But I think those are the 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 one the outliers that kind of surprise are the sneaky marketplaces, if you will. Yeah. And um, when you're selling on eBay and Amazon, 
on one differentiator is they are the merchant of record, which the way I think about it is when the consumer gets their credit card, it says Amazon, not, you know, Jason's, uh, you know, mouse shop. So, uh, but then through a lot of these new models, they're using some of these new payment systems like a Stripe or a Braintree, and they're asking you to the, the merchant to now be the merchant of record. So it's kind of an interesting hybrid in that way, but it still has a percent of sales model. Um, there's still a fair amount of transparency to the consumer. They're dealing with a third party. So I, I continue to put those in the marketplace bucket. Um, but, you know, a lot of people uh, don't realize when you're using things like Wanilo or there's there's many of these now there's you know well over 200 marketplaces that we track at channel advisor um, and more every day um, and there's all kinds of really interesting models there's super vertical ones like reverb for professional music equipment or there's some for you know that that are uh, more for city dwellers that are in the apparel category and it's kind of like high-end apparel so you know a pair of sunglasses that probably you and I wouldn't buy for $600, but there's someone out there that, that is into those kinds of things. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the marketplaces that, that you introduced a lot of the audience to for the first time uh, probably was Wish. Uh, and I, I happen to notice they're running like national TV ads now. Yeah. Yeah. Wish is really, um, you know, they don't disclose a lot, but there's all these rumors that they've crossed over a billion dollars of GMV. Um, they're spending a lot of money on national branding. So they've done uh, an NBA sponsorship. So they're on some of the logos. Uh, their logos are on jerseys. Um, they're doing a, a pretty big ad campaign uh, around their marketplace. Um, and the way I, I think of them as a cross-border marketplace. So most of the product available on Wish is being sold direct from China. And they've implemented a lot of supply chain things and whatnot. Um, the result is you get super cheap product, uh, which really applies to that value-oriented consumer we talk about and bifurcation. But the trade-off is because a lot of it's kind of on the literal slow boat from China, uh, it does take a while to get there. So it's one of those kind of trade-offs that consumers seem to be uh, well, willing to make today. Um, the one thing I worry about, which is Amazon has now got kind of a lot of the same stuff at the same price, but then it's an FBA. So now you get it in two days. So it's going to be interesting to see how Wish does against that that head on competition. Yeah. Yeah. The the television ad I noticed, um, uh, it was like a dad that had bought like smart watches for his three kids and they each cost like 10 bucks. And so the kids were, you know, it's the it's these low cost, like sort of surprise and delight moments. Um but I did have a takeaway from their their big NBA sponsorship is if you if you do, are building a business and you decide to use uh, professional sports endorsements, um, make sure the players know what the heck you do, because there's some really funny videos on YouTube of like reporters asking uh, L.A. Lakers what wish is as they're wearing the wish logo on their uniform. And they they had literally no idea. <laughs> Cool. Uh, and then after my session, we went to uh, one that you were excited about, which was the Gen Z panel. Yeah, I probably made Scott go to this one. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this is kind of a common model at a, at a lot of shows is you you bring actual Generation Z uh, folks um, to talk to the audience and like help help give them a more accurate you know representation of, of this this. Um, persona that, you know, a lot of marketers are targeting. Um, and what, what's a little different about the MPD version, like very often, uh, literally like the show organizers will go to a, a high school and get like five regular high schoolers and have, you know, some moderator ask them questions about how they shop or what brands they like and whether they like going to malls or not. Um, in this case, these are almost, uh, I'll call them professional generation Z, uh, spokespeople, um, uh, there's a, a guy I got to meet a couple of times now, uh, Connor Blakely, who, who, uh, um, I don't, I don't know how old he is, but I, you know, he's probably, uh, like 19, uh, and he started a company called Youth Logic, and they essentially sell the, this kind of, uh, advisory service to brands. And so as a brand, you, you hire, uh, Connor and he, he sends some Gen Z folks to your office to, sort of evaluate your offerings and, and talk about, you know, how they're seen through the, the Gen Z lens. So Connor was on the panel. One of, one of his employees, Madison uh, Bringman was on the panel. Uh, and then uh, um, 
another Gen Z expert that had started his own company called Gen Z Guru, a guy named uh, Jonah Stillman. And I think Jonah actually got Mark Cuban to invest in his company. Um, so we had these kind of three Gen Zs that were interviewed by the moderator who was uh, 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 Alexandria Levitt, um, who, who uh, uh, wrote a book about, about um, uh, some, some uh, other customer cohorts in the past was sort of interviewing them, uh, and they're all the typical funny moments. Like they, uh, you know, at some point they, they talk about olds and, you know, uh, referencing like parents that, that don't get something. And they, you know, they, they talked about super old people and they were talking about people that were like 35 and older, um, which, you know, probably was every single person in the, in the audience. Um, there's a lot of, of, uh, interesting dialogue about, uh, authenticity and purpose. So, you know, like there's this notion that like Gen Z like brands with a purpose, like the Tom shoes, you know, buy one, get one kind of program. Uh, but how Gen Z is really good at smelling out these, um, inauthentic purposes. Um, and that, you know, a lot of brands make mistakes by having these inauthentic purposes. Uh, Connor used one example of a, you know, company that bought a Super Bowl ad, to do like a, a message that they're, that they have an environmentally friendly purpose. And Connor's like, uh, Hey, if you really have an environmentally friendly purpose, you wouldn't have wasted $5 million on a Super Bowl ad. Uh, and, and his, you know, kind of thing was, uh, what you have to understand is, you know, Gen Z grew up digital. They've been bombarded with all these messages. They have to multitask much more than any previous generation. And so as a, a result, they're much better at curating information. And he, he kind of bluntly put it like we, we have more attuned BS meters than previous cohorts. Um, and so, you know, you just have to be really careful about being being uh, inauthentic uh, with them. And so, you know, it's, there's some inter interesting takeaways Um you know, I thought the panel did a good job, but I personally, I do wonder if this is the last cohort we ever have to talk about, because I like I, I do have this kind of premise that all the behaviors they were describing, like I could find you 60 year olds that behave exactly the same way. And in the old world of like television advertising, like one of the only things we could know about our audience was how old they were. And so we could kind of tailor our, our commercials to a particular age. But today I feel like we have much more granular tools to to market to individuals. And so I just, I just wonder if, if like the differences between millennials and Gen Z are, are ever going to be as important as, as, you know, once the, the differences between boomers and, and, uh, uh, Gen Xers was. Yeah. I, I kind of came away from the panel with what I would call cognitive dissonance where, so, so there's like six examples where they would say one thing and then they would like say something that totally countered it. And it was really hard to get your head around. So, so one example is in the early part, you know, Connor was like, Oh, we, you know, Gen Z's love the mall. We love, it's great. I go to the mall all the time. And then someone else, you know, then several times you could tell, uh, that they probably haven't been in a mall in a very long time because, you know, the guy was trying to describe what Abercrombie looks like now and he couldn't really kind of articulate it because I don't think he's been in an Abercrombie in a long time. He, and he then made fun said, of Abercrombie from like four years ago, but you're right. Like they have changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then someone said, if you had a hundred dollars, what would you do? And one guy's like buy stuff in Fortnite. Uh, and you know, the girl was like, I'd buy some Nike stuff, but she's not going to go to the mall for that. She'll go to, you know, I assume she'd order on. She also said, you know, I just buy everything from Amazon. Uh, and I know from my Gen Zers that, you know, I've got two college age kids. They do not like to go to the mall and you really have to kind of like drag them there. So there was some, you know, that was kind of one example. There was like six or seven other ones where I was kind of like, you just counteracted what you just said like six minutes ago. I, I don't know. It was hard to nail down. If if I was sitting in the audience trying to get something actionable from it, I, I came, when we're out, came away with there is no actionable thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, no, and but to me, part of that is like I'm sure you can find Gen Zers that do go to the mall, like and and relative to other cohorts, yeah, there are there are more 16 year old kids at the mall than there are 60 year olds at the mall. Um, yeah. But like it's going down across all cohorts, and and you know the point just being today you can know which 10 Gen Zers really do want to go to the mall and you can have a message for them and you can know which ones like buy 95% of their purchases on Amazon and you can have a different message for them. So that's kind of my uh, uh, death of the personas as we move into a one-to-one -one world.
Yeah, and then uh, one thing the folks at NPD do a great job at is the entertainment at their shows is top-notch. So they shuttled us over to Austin City Live, which was exciting. I'd never been there before. Uh, and we saw a country music band, which uh, was Runaway June, and then the Doobie Brothers. Um, and it was kind of a long day, so I actually enjoyed the opening uh, act kind of more than the closing act. But that was just kind of me, so that was good. Yeah, and I, I know nothing about country music, so I had never heard of them. So that was, it was kind of fun, um, and I, I think uh, it's a a trio of young women that sing harmonies, and uh, one of the women was the granddaughter of John Wayne. Yeah, that was kind of neat, neat fun fact. Yeah, cool. So then we uh, that was day one, and then day two began with you drinking three venti lattes, and then we went to go see. Uh, Don Unser, he is the, uh, I think his title is VP of sales there at NPD. He's the head sales guy and, and one of the, the guys that leads their vertical teams. Um, and he had a really good presentation of some of the in insights they've gotten from their data. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the a uh, Scott was nice enough to have bought at least one of those lattes for me that morning. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciated that. I had to meet early for breakfast with my panel. So that was super nice of you. Um, so MPD, because they have access to this really rich data set, uh, Don uh, in particular is, is super well known for doing these retail trends decks that leverage that data a lot. And so this was kind of a, a permeation of that. Like he had some key retail trends from their data in there. And then he also had some uh, hypothesis about like how consumers were actually changing as a result of some of these trends, which that was maybe a, a new spin on it. Um, so as you mentioned up front, MPD tracks these 20 core categories um, across a whole bunch of retailers. Um, and so the first thing he shows is the MPD money slide, which is kind of uh, how big each of the categories that they track is and whether it's growing or shrinking. Um, and so, so this was a, a March 2018 view looking at growth over the last 12 months. And you had, you know, category, like the biggest category with by far the most significant growth for them is video games. Uh, so that uh, category was growing at 18.4%. Um, and it's a decent sized market. It's like a $36 billion market um, as, they, as they define it. Uh, Prestige Beauty was growing at 9.4%. Small appliances were growing at 7%. Auto parts at 5%. Toys at 5%. Uh, consumer electronics at 4.7%, uh, housewares at 3.8%. And then you kind of dropped into all these categories that had like pretty nominal growth, like uh, books, office supplies, footwear, uh, perishable grocery, uh, uh, dry goods, health and beauty aids. Um, and then you got into the bottom categories that were laggards for them. Uh, apparel was basically flat accessories, which is like sunglasses and things like that was down 2%. And then the, the big loser, which is probably no surprise to anyone is video entertainment. Um, which, you know, for most of this retailers used to be movies that they sold on these plastic circles called DVDs. Um, and that, that was way down at like 12%. So all told, if you total up all 20 categories that MPD follows, they're following about $1.8 trillion in consumer spending. Uh, all retail is probably about $3.8 trillion, so it's a good chunk of all consumer spending. And on the aggregate, all those categories grew at 1.8%, you know, but it's interesting to know that you know, there are these big opportunities in, in things like video games and uh, beauty, less opportunities in apparel and accessories. Uh, and if you're a subscriber to MPD, the, the even more granular view, which Don didn't get into, is super important because you look at consumer electronics and you say, oh, my gosh, it's growing at 4.7 percent. That's good news. But then you look uh, you look at the granular data and you see that, like, uh, you know, flat screen TVs, which is the bulk of of the market, you know, is kind of flat to down. And it's things like uh, headphones and smart smart speakers that are responsible for all the growth in the consumer electronics category. And so that's really kind of the the magic value of MPD is having that, that granular look at what's happening in subcategories, what's growing, what's shrinking, you know, what's on trend versus off of trend. Um, the, one of the things that Don uh, broke out that was kind of a new look that I hadn't seen them talk about before is they had this concept of distribution um, 
of of shoppers based on the amount of their spend is online versus offline. So they so see if I can describe this in a way that's that's possible to follow. Uh, there's a chunk of the U.S. population that spends less than 10% of their their per- makes less than 10% of their purchases online, um, and that chunk is 43% of all consumers spend less than 10% online. Then there's a, a cohort that spend 10 to 25% online. That chunk is 18% of the population. Another 20% 20% spend 25 to 50% online. Another uh, 13% percent spend 50 to 75 percent online and then there's six percent of the population that spends more than 75 percent of their budget online um and so you know they have this kind of interesting distribution and you say oh my gosh the overwhelming majority of consumers 43 percent still um you know which is the biggest by far one of these cohorts still spend less than 10 percent of their dollars online uh you know the easy takeaway there is there's a lot more online growth um, and, uh, you know, call back to Michael Dart from the day before, like he made the point, nobody knows what the, what the final equilibrium will be on online versus offline shopping. Like Michael postulated that it could be 50, 50 eventually. But what he says, I do know is that it's a one way road. People are only moving from online, offline to online, that there are not people moving from online back to offline, <laughs> um, which, which certainly makes some sense. Uh, so you take MPD's new idea of breaking down the distribution of spender of shoppers by these different different spending patterns, and then he you then break it down by retailer, and you get some really interesting insights, right? So, less than one percent of Amazon's shoppers spend less than ten percent of their budget online. So that big forty three percent, Amazon only has one percent of those guys. Like those guys are not Amazon shoppers yet, which is like. Uh, frankly, great news for Amazon. And Walmart is exactly the opposite, right? Like the biggest chunk of Walmart shoppers spend um, less than 10% of their of their uh, budget o- online. Um, and a tiny sliver of, of the Walmart shopper spend 75% online. And so you kind of, you know, those are the two extremes. Amazon heavily biased towards predominantly online shoppers. Walmart heavily biased towards very casual online shoppers. And then, you know, what was interesting is they showed Target, Best Buy, and Kohl's, which had surprisingly even distribution across all of those different cohorts. So it was kind of interesting. Target, Best Buy, and Kohl's do just about as well with the the guys that spend 75% of their budget online as they do with the the, the women that spend less than 10% online versus Walmart and Amazon, you know, uh, tended to be heavily bifurcated. And so I, I, th- I thought that was sort of an interesting new new dimension that I hadn't really thought about before. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. It kind of, you know, I think the takeaway was, uh, you know, once, and then there was another one where the big guys, so Kohl's, Target, et cetera, lost share as people went towards online and Amazon with the exception of Best Buy. So it showed, you know, one takeaway was Best Buy seems to have kind of figured out how to stop erosion. So, you know, what are they doing to do that? Uh, and then, you know, there's definitely this battle for that 43% of people that are, we think will come online and, you know, Walmart probably wants to keep them in the Walmart family and then Amazon wants to extract them over onto prime. And that's going to be a really interesting battleground over the next five years was one of my takeaways. And, um, it was just a, you know, We've heard uh, Mark Laurie talk about it. Amazon hasn't really talked about it specifically, but some of the moves they've made with going to a monthly Prime number, uh, you know, paying Prime fees with cash, some of that stuff has been kind of along the same lines. So it's going to be interesting to watch that that battle come to play. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, you know, so it, I, I mean, uh, I always enjoy Don's presentations because I just think the the data is super valuable, and it's like you know we have all these urban legends about how things are doing, um, but they're you know these super useful data sets that MPD provides. Like uh, there's another one I didn't cover, but that they do frequently uh, where they show the fastest growing subcategories, right? And that's almost you know much more important than the big categories. Are you find out that like hey shoes might be footwear might be flat, but but performance running shoes is a, a huge growth opportunity right now. And, you know, they even particularly talked about how in these subcategories, 
you can really see trends go viral. So like an example they used is uh, like office products is not a, a, a particular growth industry right now. Um, but Elmer's glue, like in the, the adhesive category is booming. And uh, the reason it's booming for, for, you know, parents that don't have, have uh, like sub 10 year old children at home is there's this huge trend on YouTube of, kids making goo and uh, slime slime rather. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, there are all these different ways to make and all these interesting, you know, things kids are doing with slime and the primary ingredient for all this slime is Elmer's glue. And before this trend office product companies mainly sold four ounce, you know, bottles of Elmer's glue that you'd use to glue paper together. And uh, now they're all selling five gallon bottles of this, this, this glue and, you know, selling it in much higher quantities. Yeah, it's uh, I won't get into it. It's a problem. Yeah. Slime, slime has taken over our lives. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's interesting to see those trends and and be able to react to those trends. Another one is like the Instapot is the is this you know booming uh, small cooking appliance which has you know lifted the whole small appliances category at the moment. Cool. So that was the highlight there, and then um, there was some random guy talking about last mile. Um, did you go to that one? I did. I did. I was actually the moderator for that one. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it might have been hard for you to follow because they had to, like, shrink down the room a lot from the earlier uh, Marketplace one to, you know, not make it look empty with with just, you know, folks that were interested in something as trivial as, you know, how you get the goods to the consumer. It was a more intimate setting than exactly. the Marketplace. Exactly. Talk. Uh, no, but, uh, I thought we had a good panel. Um, so, so I had, uh, three subject matter experts, uh, on the panel. Um, we had, uh, Jamie Sosky, who's the VP of customer experience at Walmart, VP of marketing owns the in-end customer experience for Walmart. Um, and as, as you know, Scott, Walmart is doing, you know, a ton of new last mile experiences. Uh, we had uh, Jaron Waldman, um, who's the founder of Curbside. So they're a vendor uh, that that implement curbside pickup programs for a bunch of retailers, including like Sephora, Nordstrom, CVS. Um, and uh, Jaron has kind of a cool past. He had he had started a, a mobile geolocation company that ultimately got bought by Apple, and so Jaron actually ran the the mobile geolocation team at Apple for like four years and. Uh, uh, you know, a big part of the value proposition of curbside is uh, that they have some really smart technology for using your phone to geolocate you and get your order ready, you know, as you pull into the parking lot. Um, so he had had some uh, good good POVs about uh, what customer expectations were in, in the last mile. Um, and then we had a gentleman named uh, Orrin Schauble, who's uh, from a, a consulting firm called uh, Gwyn Industries. Uh, that specialize in drone technologies. Um, uh, and uh, Gwyn is his boss's name, who is the former president of DJI. So, you know, uh, certainly credible uh, drone space. But these guys are selling like industrial drones for a lot of B2B uses. Uh, and of course, you know, drones are frequently talked about in the last mile. And and I, I was sort of pleasantly surprised. Oren was, was um, sort of refreshingly candid that like, Really, the regulatory environment in the U.S. is is uh, we we are miles away from drones being an important part of the the last mile solution in the U.S. because um, we're we're uh, you know there's still some very significant regulatory barriers. Um, but he did mention that most of the other technical barriers, the you know the ability to build these practical drones that that can carry heavy payloads, um, and the the software capabilities to do the traffic management and delivery. Like he's, he, you know, he felt like those problems used to be big, big technical challenges and essentially are, are completely solved. And so, you know, in his mind at this point, the, the one barrier to, to drones being an important part of, of the last mile are regulatory, but he, he doesn't think there's going to be a resolution to that anytime soon. Um, we did get to talk a little bit about autonomous vehicles and, and, you know, their role in the last mile, which was interesting um, but the big takeaway from Jaron and Jamie, uh, is kind of going back to this persona thing that like, 
you know, the old world where you, we have like buy line pickup in store consumers versus home delivery consumers versus in store consumers. And what, you know, both curbside and Walmart had sort of independently learned is that every consumer is a user of all these different experiences and that it's, it's just really based on context and that there's a, you know, soccer mom that loves curbside pickup for her regular groceries. Um, but you know, has certain occasions when she wants home delivery and she really wants to shop in the store for her own Christmas dinner meal. So, um, you know, thinking about all these experiences being important in different contexts for the shopper, as opposed to thinking about these experiences being the one and only delivery method that different consumers would use, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Just to back up a little bit, I think it'd be good for listeners. Um, you had a great kind of opening setup, which was good. Uh, and you talked about the existing carriers and how much package volume they can handle and how much they're growing versus e-commerce. Maybe maybe run through that just at a high level for folks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've talked about this at a high level a couple times um, before on the show. Uh, the in general, e-commerce is growing at, uh, you know, call it 15%. Um, and that the, the carriers are growing their capacity at about 8%. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have a clear mismatch there. Um, for this show, I showed some more granular data that Cowan had put together. Um, and so you kind of paint a picture for, for how e-commerce companies are using the different carriers. And, and you know, uh, folks should know the primary carrier that Amazon uses for the last mile is the U.S. Post Office. Um, and that's because they have fulfillment centers so close to the consumer that Amazon's big problem is not moving the goods across the country. They, they mostly do that in their own private network now. Um, their, their big problem is the last mile, and uh, the U.S. Post Office has the, by far the most economical um, route-based delivery solution for that last mile. And so, you know, something like 44% from memory of, of all of... Uh, Amazon's packages get delivered by the U.S. Post Office. Then uh, uh, UPS is the big air air carrier for Amazon. Uh, FedEx does do some deliveries, but it's only like 5%. And then, you know, a growing chunk, I think it's like between 13 and 15% of uh, Amazon's uh, packages get delivered by Amazon's own people. And that that's obviously a growing percentage. Um, so then you break down that like the U.S. Post Office is growing at like, their capacity, like 8%, uh, UPS and FedEx are growing actually even slower. And you go, man, uh, for for these big e-commerce sites like Amazon and Walmart that are growing at like 35%, um, they're, they're consuming much more capacity than the post office and, and UPS are growing. And so, you know, you think about Amazon investing in their own delivery uh, network that's not to just reduce costs or to, you know, threaten the viability of, of the commercial carriers. It's really because they they simply, you know, to meet their own growth expectations, need more capacity than they can buy on the open market. Yeah, I thought that was that was uh, super insightful and really teed it up nice. And I was just kidding. It was a really good panel and I, I learned a ton. I um I wanted to ask the curbside guy a couple of things that he mentioned they're doing a lot more food uh, curbside delivery. And when you start thinking about food, now these places have a curbside vendor like curbside and they've got six or seven other kind of pickup and delivery places at, at one point to like, does the supply chain, the, the software they're using consolidate because you go into these restaurants and they get like the six iPads sitting there. So we'll have to try to get uh, Jaron on the show and, and see what he has to say about that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. We we uh, we did not talk about that specific question, so that'd be a great one to ask him. He definitely did say QSR is sort of the fastest growing component, and I do think that like he's providing software that essentially the retailer buys and owns versus uh, a lot of those delivery services are sort of outsourced solutions, if you will. But but you're certainly right. Like uh, there's a you know a a desk full of tools that these, these, uh, restaurants and QSRs are using at the moment. Cool. And then, uh, your panel, uh, wrapped up and then I had to shoot out and then did you get a chance to see the rest of the show? I didn't. So there was one other, uh, breakout session that I, I, uh, did not get to attend. Um, but, 
like I sh- we should have said for each of these hours you- during your session and my session, there there were a couple topics that you could choose, and obviously we we were both you know the the most interesting one to choose. Um, there were a couple <laughs> a couple sessions during the last one. Uh, there was an interesting case study on Sony um, sort of rebounding. Um, from like really losing a lot of their brand prestige to focusing on uh, making some really hard decisions to get out of some categories and reinvest in others. Um, I heard, I did not get to attend that, but I heard it was interesting. And then the final keynote uh, that unfortunately a work uh, uh, emergency called me away for was uh, the A-Rod was uh, uh, in town and, and uh, um, you know, talked a little bit about his own entrepreneurial journey, which I imagine was, was interesting. Yeah, very cool. I wonder if uh, J-Lo was there. Yeah, uh, I did not see her. Uh, I feel like she would have dropped me a line if she was in town. But um, uh, I feel like it's a good thing that we didn't have a deep recap on A-Rod because it's already happened again. We've used up a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Um, So if you have any questions we didn't get to or or if you're at the show yourself or had any, any comments, we'd love to hear... Uh, your questions on Facebook and we can keep the conversation going there. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed this show, you know, it only takes about 10 seconds of your life to jump over to iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, that that really helps us with visibility on the podcast and we, we really do appreciate that. Yep. Thanks everyone for listening and thanks to the team at NPD for putting on a great conference and for having Jason and I as speakers. We really enjoyed the show and appreciated the opportunity. Uh, Absolutely. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.